0: Welcome to Mission Church this morning. I'm glad you guys are all here. Uh, We are excited about what God is doing in this place this morning. And we are here for one reason, one reason only, and that is to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. My name is Pastor Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Eric usually takes care of the preaching and teaching, but he called in a pinch hitter this morning and I'm it. So um, here we go. Thank you for being here though, and we pray that everything that we do here points to Jesus And magnifies his name, not Mission Church, not our name, any of those things. So let me pray and we will get started. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can dive into your word, that you have spoken clearly through your word, that you have revealed all things that you want us to know in your word. And I pray that everything that we do here, from the singing to the preaching and teaching to the fellowship afterward to the cleanup and tear down and and all of those things would be to glorify you and you alone. That everything that here, done here this morning will be spirit-led, biblically-based, God-glorifying, and Jesus-exalting. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. Before we get started, um, if you have one of these, which you should have got when you come in, if you are new here, I see a lot of new faces, uh, please fill out the connection card that goes on there. Uh, you can tear it off. It's perforated. Uh, just fill out any Prayer request, uh, name, address, anything that you want us to know about you. We're not going to stalk you. It's just so we can have a record of your attendance. Um, And that way, if you do need anything, we have a way of contacting you. And if you have a response today, we have a record of that as well. So fill that out, put it in the offering box on the way out. All right. Now, today, we're going to be finishing up a sermon series that we entitled Never Fails. It goes through Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. Now, if you've been with us through this entire journey, I know what you're saying. You're saying, We haven't even started chapter 11 and how we're going to finish it today. Just get your snacks ready because it might be a while. So we're going to do the whole chapter and we're going to finish it. If you get hungry, there's donuts out there. So go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. We just heard Miss Charlotte read that and I appreciate that. And we see here that Paul begins with a question. Now if he begins with a question, he must be asking about something he just previously said. Now remember that the chapter breaks and the verse breaks and all those weren't in the original letter. He was just writing a letter to people. We put those in later so that we can find where we are and tell everybody where we are. So he's asking a question about something that he just said. And if we read Romans 10, 21, it says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So we see, we see that God is holding his hands out to a disobedient contrary people. He refers to that, obviously, as Israel. And then Paul asks a very logical question. If you want to title today's sermon, it could be logical questions by Paul. Because he asked quite a few in here. And we're going to ask a few more to see exactly what Paul might be saying. But the first logical question, then, is if Israel is a disobedient and contrary people, and God is holding his hands out to them, and they're not turning to him, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means. Now, if you've been with us through chapters 9 and 10, then you have heard it reiterated over and over again that salvation is in the hands of God. It is all God's doing. It is all God's work. We have nothing to add to or diminish salvation. So, we have logical questions here as well. If God is solely in charge of salvation, and it's all His work, and people can't turn to Him on their own then why is he bothering to hold his hands out to a people that are contrary and disobedient? Isn't it God that's making them contrary and disobedient? Haven't we gone over that for two chapters? Now, to answer that question, we're going to look at Scripture first and then move forward. The first Scripture is Ezekiel 33.11. You don't have to turn there. I think it is listed in your weekly, though. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet... We see over and over in Scripture that God is going to pour out His wrath on people that do not have a relationship with Him. But it says here, He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now moving to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God desires for all people to be saved. Now... We will look at what all means a couple of times today. Does all mean that he desires every single individual person to be saved? Because that would verge on universalism, which we do not preach here. Now, does it mean all types of people? That is what we believe that it means. It means all types of people God desires to be saved. That's Jews, that's Gentiles, that's foreigners, that's every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So... If God is fully and solely in charge of these things, and he desires for all people to be saved, then the next logical question, which Paul does not ask, but we are going to ask today, is does this mean that God desires something that he is incapable or unwilling to fulfill? And to use Paul's words, the answer is, by no means. You see, God desires for all people to be saved. And again, all types of people to be saved. And I believe that that will happen. But even more than that, he desires to glorify himself. We see this already in in this sermon series, Romans chapter 9, 22 and 23. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand? It is all about God's glory. Everything that he does, everything that he doesn't do, whether he saves or does not save, it is all about pointing people to him and to his glory. However, holding his hands out to the Israelites is a heartfelt offer. He is saying, if you will turn to me, I will take you back. You have been disobedient, you are contrary, but if you turn to me, I will accept you back. I've never once seen someone make a heartfelt confession of faith to Jesus and him go, No thanks. Why? Because God is solely in charge of salvation. And God is the one that changed that person's heart to make them make that confession of faith. So he's not going to make someone make a confession of faith... And then turn away from them. And he will do the exact same thing for the Israelites. He is saying, come to me, repent, turn to me, worship. Please, I have shown you time and time and time again who I am, what I'm capable of, and why I should be worshipped. And you have turned away and turned away. And I want you back. You are my chosen people. So Paul opens here by asking, if God is in charge of those things, and they're not turning, has he rejected his people? And again, the answer is is by no means, and there's an exclamation point there, so he must mean business. I did look up, by the way, there are no exclamation points in the original Greek, but they have ways of making it exclamatory for an elementary school word there. But Paul goes on to offer four proofs as to why the answer can be, by no means has God rejected his people. Number one, guess who is a Jew? The writer of this letter. Paul is a Jew, and he wasn't just, Jew, he was like super Jewish, like he probably had a cape with a J on the back and flew around Jerusalem doing Jewish things because he was extra, extra Jewish. Everything that he did in his life before Jesus was directed at becoming a respectable Jewish person. We see this in Philippians 3, 4-7. through 7. He gives a laundry list of how he is qualified to be a very good Jew. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He has upheld the law. He is doing all of these things. And yet he counts those things as rubbish now because he has met Jesus and he has found out that the gospel of grace, not by works, is the truth. This is precisely what led the Apostle Paul, at that time Saul, to persecute Christians. He believed that being Jewish and being a good Jew meant, I've got to turn these people away from worshiping Jesus. What they are doing is wrong, and I have to turn them away. This is what made him do those things. And yet, we see him here, preaching the gospel of grace, saved as saved can be. So God has not rejected Paul. He was Jewish. Proof number one. Number two, God is, we see this in verse two, where it says, For I myself and am Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's Paul. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We looked at this in Romans chapter 8. God will never reject his people because he foreknows them, he predestines them, he saves them, he glorifies them, all of those things. From start to finish, salvation is in the hands of God. And if he foreknows someone to be saved, they will be saved, Jew or Gentile. So there's number two. He has not rejected his people because there are people that will be saved in the Jewish people. Number three, we see biblical evidence This is in verse 2 through 4. It says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed bowed a knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul here, for proof number 3, uses biblical evidence, saying, This is a story from 1 Kings that we don't have a time to read all of. Short version is, Elijah has just secured a victory over the prophets of Baal. That was another god of of the time. And in that, the Israelite people had turned against Elijah and wanted to kill him. And Elijah is running, fleeing for his life, praying to God for mercy on his life, and praying to God for judgment on the Israelite people, saying, I am the only faithful man left. There are none. They have all turned away from you, God. Judge them. Take care of business and leave, let them leave me alone. And God says, oh, I got that, don't worry. And, and you see in the next couple of chapters in 1 Kings that God does take care of the unfaithful. But then he tells Elijah, there are other people besides you. I have saved for myself a remnant of 7,000 people that never bowed a knee to Baal. They are very faithful, just like you. They love me, just like you. And those people are Jewish and are being saved. So God said there is a remnant of Israelites in the Old Testament. That Paul uses that to spring forward to proof number four. Verse five we see. So too at the present time there is a remnant. So he spring, springboards forward. And he says look it may look bleak. It may look like there's not very many Jewish people that believe. But there are. They're out there. there he doesn't give a number on this one. But there are a remnant of Jewish believers That God is still saving, he is still sanctifying, and they are still doing God's work. So Paul offers four proofs here. Has God rejected his people? No. Does God's word fail? We looked at that in Romans 9 verse 6. Does God's word fail? By no means. He is still saving those whom he foreknew. He is still saving those he predestined. And that falls on the Jewish people and the Gentile people. It is not God's fault that the Israelite people misinterpreted what he said when he said, I am going to save my people. They took that to mean Jews and Jews only. God meant that for the nations, and we have to get that distinction. God meant he is going to save his people. Israelite is his original chosen people, but he is going to add to that, which we will actually see a little bit later in this scripture. But this revelation, I don't know if I really want to call it that because it's been in writing for years but this revelation seemed to surprise the jews they seemed to be caught off guard by the fact that oh gentiles are allowed to believe this way as well they're allowed to be grafted in or they're allowed and this is far from exhaustive there's a list in your weekly with scriptures and it probably could have been five pages long of mission in the old testament this has been god's plan from the beginning we're going to look at a couple of them here but just know that it is all over scripture in the old testament we look at it from the beginning though, Genesis 18, 18. It says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, that is Israel, and all the nations on the earth shall be blessed by him. So God is saying, look, I'm going to make Abraham a great and mighty nation. From that nation, all nations on earth will be blessed. Psalm 67, 5, let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you, peoples This is people groups. This is nations. This is not just saying, let all the Jewish people praise you. It's plural for a reason, because it is all nations. Start with the Jewish people, and it will spread to all peoples, and they will praise God. Isaiah 49.6 "'I will make you, Israel, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth.'" So even if they wanted to look at Genesis 18 18 and say, oh, God's going to bless those people, maybe he means money. Maybe he means land. Maybe he means this, that, or the other. Here, the wording changes. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So it's going to start with the Jewish people, but salvation is the blessing he is referring to that is going to spread to all of the nations. It's not just for you, Israelites. It starts with you. Your job is to take it to everyone. Zechariah 2.11 And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So again, this is another progression. So even if the Israelites were like, eh, salvation might mean something else. He's using the same words here he uses to describe the Israelites people. Israelite people. You are my people. God says that over and over. Israelite people, you are my people. And then he says, and many nations shall join themselves and they shall be my people. People uses the exact same wording hopefully to get it through the thick skulls of the Israelites that look, salvation starts here, it doesn't end here. It is to go to the nations. And yet it is clear through the New Testament that even though this was God's plan all along and even though he revealed it to the Jewish people in writing that to be a good Jew you had to memorize the Old Testament basically. So they would have known these scriptures were in there and yet they basically just ignore them which reminds me a lot of people nowadays. We see things in Scripture. We don't like it. that doesn't exactly mesh with what we already believe. So we change Scripture to to, uh, go with our beliefs instead of change our beliefs to go with Scripture. And this seems to be what the Jewish people were doing. It seems to be what was going on in the Garden of Eden. So apparently it's been a problem since the beginning of time. Twisting God's words, twisting what He has said from the beginning as truth, and making it fit into your scheme of things. But Paul tells us here that, look, it's not just for you. It is for everyone chosen by grace will be saved. And then he goes into verse 6 where he reminds us of something that he has said numerous times through Romans. And it says, but it is by, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, Paul tells us here, What he has told us over and over again. We are not saved by works. Nothing that we can do adds to or diminishes from God's salvation. It is solely his works. If you have a job in this place uh, today and you get paid every two weeks or week or whatever you get paid, it's not because of the grace of your employer. You earned that money. They told you, you work this many hours, I'll give you this amount of money. And then at the end of that, that's what they do. You worked for it, you earned it. Grace is the exact opposite. Our salvation is the... We've earned something, all right. But it's not grace. And yet, what we receive based upon the choosing and the predestination, the election, the glorification, all of those things that we learned in Romans 8, of God, we receive grace when we do not deserve it. But you see, the Jews had turned from a gospel of grace to a gospel of works, or at least a gospel of nationality. They thought, well, I'm Jewish, I'm God's people, I'll be saved. And some of them took it a step further and said, well, I'm Jewish, if I do these things, I will be saved. Either way, it is contrary to what we see Paul preaching here, that it is by grace and only by grace, it is no longer a, grace or a gospel of works. Now, why is that? Why does Paul keep bringing this up? Because right here, it kind of seems out of place, doesn't it? He's talking about the Jewish people, he's talking about how some of the Jews will be saved, I'm a Jew... You're a Jew, everybody's a Jew, whatever. He talks about all of those things, and then all of a sudden he's like, by the way, it's by grace. And then he he moves on from it as well. It's like he just kind of slips it in there just in case you forgot. And I think this is for a reason. I think it's because he knows that this is our default mechanism. We always want to go back to a gospel of works. We always think that I can do better, I can try harder. I can judge myself based on how I'm doing today. I can judge others on how they're doing today. Oh, they're not as Christian as me. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't watch that movie. I wouldn't, whatever it is. Because our default is to always go back to a gospel of works. Quick poll, and I actually do want you to raise your hands here. Not yet. I knew, I knew one, somebody out there would do that. By show of hands, <laughs> who in here thinks that it is at least in the outside possibility that you could be a better Christian? Wow! Really, three people, awesome. Y'all, y'all are perfect. I didn't even. This side didn't even have. I think one. Um, all right. I know you guys. Everybody should have their hands up. Um, secondly, second poll of of the people that of the three people that think it's possible you could be a better Christian. Um, do you actually want to be a better Christian? Again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because the first one did not go well. But think, <laughs> think to yourself. Do I actually want this? Do I want to be a better Christian? Because all of us should have our hands raised on both of those, including me. Pastor Eric actually did raise his hand, so he's, I guess he's in the confessional mood this morning. But we all should want this. We should all think it is possible to do it and that we should want to do it. But what we miss too often here is how we get there. You see, being a better Christian is not a matter of trying harder. It is not a matter of desiring or displaying more willpower. It is not about managing temptation because you learned a new trick or a new self-help book or you read something that you think might work for you because you're struggling with sin. We have bought the lie too much that self-help and medication will help us to be a better Christian. Being a better Christian is laying those things down and submitting them to God. Trusting in the power of Christ, in His life, in His resurrection, in His ability to save. Being a better Christian is more fully giving your life to the only one that can redeem it. And the only one that can actually change your desires instead of just managing them. Being a better Christian is saying, I cannot do this on my own. Please help me, Jesus Because I cannot do this and then pushing further into the grace that allows you to do that instead of pulling back because you've messed up or screwed up again and trying harder next time. Paul knows all too well that left up to our own devices we will simply fall back into this works mentality and all we'll do is try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And Paul is saying here, you have no bootstraps. God has nothing, there's nothing in your life that God can grab a hold of that's kind of good and to pull you up. It is solely by grace. It is not because you have worked hard enough or you look good enough to Christ. It is from salvation to glorification, all God's work, no matter how long you have been a faithful Christian. If God decided today to start judging you by your works, we would all be in hell by the end of this service because of what goes on in our minds. We are so sinful that if he ever decides to judge us on works, We're done. We have no hope. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how short of a time he decides to judge you on your works. You'll screw it up that fast. And yet, this is what we think it means to be a better Christian. It is all about grace given, not grace earned. We cannot earn this grace. It is no longer about works. It is all about Jesus. And this is what Paul is trying to say here. He's saving Jews, but it's still about Jesus. He's saving Gentiles But it is still about Jesus and the grace that he has given. Now if you recall from previous chapters. That while all of that is true. Some people are saved by grace. And other peoples are hardened to this grace. Some people such as the Israelites here. Contrary and disobedient people. Are turning away from that gospel. They're not believing it. And we must not mistake this. It is God who has hardened Israel. We see this in verses 8 through 10. It says God gave them a spirit of stupor. I don't have to preach that because it says what it says. I don't have to explain that God gave them a spirit of stupor means God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see. Again, God gave them eyes that would not see. Ears that would not hear. Down to this very day. So the day Paul is writing this, and the day the Romans are reading this, and apparently even today as we're reading this, down to this very day, God is hardening the Israelite people. And then David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And God is saying, look, I'll give you all the prosperity you want. I'll give you a table. I'll give you all of the things that you want. And it will become a stumbling block because I am hardening Israelite people. But for what purpose? Okay. We read this. He asked the question. Because Paul does that. He sees that the people are going to read this and ask a question. He just asks it for them and then answers it. And it says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Now read this, because it's a little tricky in the wording. Read this as, Did Israel trespass against God so that they might be eternally damned, or irrevocably hardened, or irretrievably turned away? Is this final? Is this... The hardening of Israel, is it going on forever and they're never going to return? And Paul says, by no means. It's another exclamation point, by the way, if you're keeping count. Okay? This is where we see, begin to see the true eternal fate of the Israelite people. And I believe after my study this week, I don't know that I would have said this a week ago, but I believe the Bible to be very clear as to what's going on here. Now, is it debatable? Yes. Do some people hold to different opinions or beliefs or whatever you want to call it? Yes, but I do believe that the intention of Paul is very clear. He will present a rather lengthy analogy that Miss Charlotte got the pleasure of reading about an olive tree and being grafted in and regrafted in. And we're going to look at this whole thing, but we're not going to look at it like we do with other scriptures, word by word, phrase by phrase, all of those things. Now, I do think that that would be profitable to do in your own time to look at this, to really study it, to read commentaries, to read articles, to do that. Just for our purposes today, I don't think it is benef- as beneficial to go through it word by word. But I do think that we should do that. Okay? But we're going to look at this more in chunks. Okay? So I'm going to give you the short version first, and then we're going to expound on it a little bit. Paul is basically saying again in verses 11 through 24 that God is sovereign over all salvation. God can and does save whomever he wills. God can and does harden whoever he wills. That's the short synopsis of what all of these verses say. Now, let's look at it in chunks to see exactly what that means, though. Who is he hardening? Who is he not hardening? Okay? So, in regards to Israel, we must get, and we'll clear this up totally by verse 26. His rejection, and this is in your notes, is neither total nor final. We see that it is not total in the first five verses of of the chapter, Paul is saved, he's a Jew, 7,000 Jews were saved in Elijah's time, there's a remnant still now. So it's clearly not total, it's not every single Jewish person that has been hardened or turned away from the gospel. But we do see, in this analogy, a cycle. Okay? I do think that scripture speaks a little more to, okay, there's some Jews that are going to be saved. But we see a cycle in verses 11 through 16. Okay? And we see the reason for God's hardening. So verses 11 through 16. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? We went over that. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous And thus save some of them, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, verse sixteen is a little tricky and it almost out of place. so we'll go over that real quick. It just means that God made a promise to the forefathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the dough offered as first fruits. that's them. And he's going to keep that promise even to the ones that come after them. So, um, again, Paul kind of breaks character here where he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And then he speaks specifically about the Jews and how God has made them a promise. And he is going to fulfill that promise. But we'll get back to uh, verse 15 as well. So we see the cycle of salvation in verses eleven through fourteen. Why were the Israelites hardened, so that salvation could come to the Gentiles? We see this in Paul's life specifically. Acts thirteen forty four through forty six says the next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So it was necessary for the salvation of grace to be offered to the Jewish people, saying, turn from this gospel of works. It's not going to do you any good. And come to salvation by grace and grace alone. But when they rejected it, and apparently it was God's doing, we just read that, So when God hardened Israel, it was so that Paul would turn to the lowly Gentiles. That nobody wanted, nobody believed could be saved. They were dogs, according to the Jewish people. And yet God is saying, because you thrust it aside, I'm turning to the Gentiles now. We see it again in Acts 18.6. And when they opposed him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Again, he offered it to the Jewish people first. Because they are God's chosen people. When they thrust it aside, God's plan from the beginning was for it to flow from Israel to the Gentile people. So the fulfillment of salvation was predicated upon the Jewish people rejecting the gospel. Because if they reject it, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the first step of the cycle is that the flow of salvation would go from the Israelites who are God's chosen people. Okay? I keep saying that I hope nobody disagrees with me. There is no refuting in the Old Testament that God chose the Israelites. He says it time and time and time again. These are God's chosen people. And we will see exactly what that means here a little bit later. But they, they thrust the gospel aside so that it could go to more of God's people, the Gentiles. But for what purpose? We see verses 11 and 14. It is to make the Jewish people jealous. When they see the Gentiles receiving all of God's promises that they thought were only for them, then it will, God, Paul is saying, he hopes that it will make them jealous and they will return back to the gospel of grace. And this would lead many Jewish people via the jealousy back to Christ. So we see it from first step from the Jews to the Gentiles. Then the Gentiles get it, flows back to the Jewish people. And then step three, in verse 12, it says, Now if their trespass means riches for the whole world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So it flows from the Jews to the Gentiles. The Gentiles make the Jewish people jealous. Then a bunch of the Jewish people get saved. Everybody doesn't see that coming. And the Gentiles see God is keeping his promise to his people. That makes us believe in God even more. So it flows from the Jews to the Gentiles, the Gentiles to the Jews, and then the Jews back to the entire world. And that is why we are here today because of this cycle because God has said I'm going to harden Israel so that the gentiles can be fully included now again Paul uses this analogy of the olive tree I don't even know what an olive tree looks like by the way I just thought I thought of that all week I was like Man, I don't even know what olive tree I didn't know they grew on trees as a matter of fact but anyway this analogy still makes plenty of sense Um, So, Paul gives us a stern warning in verses 17 through 21. So, again, we're going to look at this in chunks. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the, the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, but branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, Paul gives us a very stern warning here. Don't be cocky. Yes, you're saved. Yes, you're Gentiles. You're not part of the original Jewish people. I've still saved you. But don't be arrogant about it. Don't say that God made room for you because he's kicking out the Jewish people. Because we have said all along... That our theological belief that God is in charge of salvation from beginning to end and we have nothing to do with it should create in us a humble heart, not an arrogant one. And Paul is furthering that and saying that this should make you even more humble. Because here's the thing, the analogy of the olive tree in that wild olive shoots are grafted into the, um, the original olive tree. Who are the unnatural branches? That's us ding, 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 we have a winner. We are the unnatural. We are the ones that nobody wanted. We are the ones that are thrown away and told to fend for themselves. We are the unnatural branches grafted here. And that should further our humility. Because you see, in ancient times, I learned a lot about olive trees this week. In ancient times, olive trees apparently were really hard to get to grow. You really had to take good care of them, cultivate them. It was very difficult for them to grow. So only wealthy people grew them most of the time. They weren't found in the wild very often. But this practice that Paul is talking about here of taking a wild olive shoot and grafting it into a cultivated tree didn't happen. They didn't do that because there was no benefit to the cultivated tree to get some wild root that might grow something or do something and put it on a tree that you've taken care of for maybe years. This just didn't happen. That's why in verse 24 Paul says contrary to nature because it it just wasn't practiced. So we see here that Paul is calling us to humility by reminding us that we are the unnaturals. If God willingly rejected some of the natural branches, if he is hardening his people, the Israelite people, how much more should we fear God to harden us and to turn us over to our evil desires? Because see, we were the ones that nobody wanted. The Jewish people didn't want us. Nobody thought we would come to believe Nobody thought, that everybody kind of agreed, yeah, the Jewish people are God's people. We've seen it time and time again, and we're just going to worship our gods. Nobody saw it coming, because God continually uses the least expected and the never practiced, such as grafting a wild olive shoot into a cultivated olive tree. Now, this does not mean that we should be scared that we're saved today, and God's all of a sudden going to go, nope, just kidding, <laughs> tomorrow you're not. That's not what it means. He's not going to re-harden our hearts if he's already softened it to the gospel. But we do see in Romans 1 that he will expose the posers. He will show you who is a true believer and not a true believer. And he will turn them over to the desires of their heart. We see it all over scripture. We see it specifically in Romans 1 where God says, you want it, you got it, here you go. And he will do that to us. And it, will, and it may cause people who we thought were fully saved to not, not be saved anymore. Because they never were. And God is going to harden them and show them, Look, if I made room for you, I will make room for my original people, the Jewish people. And they will be grafted back in. We see this in verses 22 through 24. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even, if they, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in? So we see here the necessity of Humility. Remember when we began looking at this, one of the notes in your weekly is that the rejection and the hardening of Israel was neither total nor final. Where do we get that? Verses 25 and 26. It says, lest you be wise in your own sight. This is talking to the Gentiles. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial... So there's the non-total part of hardening. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way... All Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, that is Israel, and this will be my covenant with with them when I take away their sins. So yes, a partial hardening has come on Israel, and it has occurred so that salvation by grace can be extended to the Gentiles, and we saw that cycle in verses 11 through 16. But when the era is over and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, it is time to regraft God's people, and he is going to save his people. It says in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, even things that I read this week, think that what this means, what Paul is saying here is all Israel, we talked about this in the beginning parts of this sermon series, that Israel is God's chosen people. When we become Gentile believers, we are added into Israel. So the true Israel, the symbolic Israel, the spiritual Israel is something that we are all part of. And God is going to save his people, the Israelites. That includes us. So some scholars say that when, when Paul says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, that that's what he's saying. All true believers in Christ will be saved. And while I do believe that God is going to save all of tr- true Israel, spiritual Israel, I don't believe that that's what this verse is saying. See, Paul, in chapters 9 through 11, has said the word Israel ten times. And ten times out of ten, he means the nation of Israel. He doesn't mean spiritual Israel. He doesn't mean symbolic Israel. He means national Israelites, Jewish people. So Paul has used this word ten times. He has just used it, the verse before. So why would he all of a sudden switch it to mean symbolic Israel Israel? And that he's just going to save his people, Gentiles and Jews. I believe this to mean literal, national Israel. Now I think the Bible is clear because Paul is saying here that when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, he's even contrasting people that aren't part of true Israel, Gentiles, with the word Israel. So he must not mean just whoever comes to faith in Jesus. He must mean national Israel he's saying that we are going to see a huge revival of Jewish believers. Now when I say we're going to see, I don't have a clue if that means in our lifetime. But at some point in future times, whenever God sees fit, there's going to be a massive revival in Messianic Jews. We see some now. We see that some Jewish people, born, raised Jewish, believe that Jesus is the way of salvation, that He is the Messiah. We see many others especially in the nation of Israel still there, that do not. And what Paul, I believe, is saying is that all Israel will be saved. Now, I said we would look at the word all again. I don't believe that this means every individual Jewish person is going to be saved. For the same reason that I don't believe in verse 12, it says now if their trespasses means riches for the world, that it means every each individual person in the world is going to be saved. Again, that's universalism. That's not what we preach here. But it does mean that a large majority of them, think about it in today's time, the day after the Super Bowl, you're going to hear sportscasters say, with all of America watching, the Broncos lost to the Seahawks, whatever it was last year. I was actually, we actually had a party at our house for church people, party, get together, whatever, church people don't party. Um, We... We got there. Some of us do, actually. But anyway, Um, so we got there. Not even every person at my house was paying attention to the game. So I know that all of America wasn't watching. And yet, that is what sportscasters will say. With all of it, like every single person was watching it. And that's simply not the case. But I do believe, and I do believe that scholars agree, most of them that it means a majority, at whatever time God chooses to cause this revival in the Jewish people, that a majority of those people that are still living and still have the possibility of turning to God in faith will turn to God in faith. A massive regrafting of Jews into the family of God, and that will inaugurate a time period that we have never seen before. Now some people believe that this will inaugurate the end. That when we see a massive revival of Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus, that that is Jesus is on his way back. I don't know what on his way back means when it's supposed to happen in a split second. But either way, they believe that it will inaugurate the time that Jesus is coming to reclaim true symbolic Israel. And that majority of the Israelites will be included in that. I'm not sure if that's true. Some believe that it is. Some believe that it isn't. They get that from verse 15. I told you we'd come back to that. It says, For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, again, not every single individual person of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Many people believe that life from the dead is a way of saying that God is going to give us true, eternal life at that moment. So when the Jewish people come to faith, that that is when he is going to resurrect the dead. Other people believe that Paul says this all the time, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that God has brought us to life, and that he is simply meaning that the Gentile-Jewish cycle that we looked at earlier from the Jews to the Gentiles, Gentiles back to the Jews, all of that, it just means that a, a lot of people will believe. Now, it's an open-handed issue, and personally, I don't really care, because it's not my job to predict when Jesus will come back. He says to fight the good fight and finish the race, and the race ain't finished till he gets here so I'm just going to keep going until he does. It doesn't matter to me when he comes back or when he's going to come back. I do know that there are lost people now. He hasn't come back yet, and it is our job to talk to them about Jesus and hopefully, as Paul says, save some. So from that, the next logical question is, and this is not in Scripture. Paul didn't ask this question because it wouldn't have made sense at the time. But why should we care? Why should we care that God is going to save a bunch of Jewish people? Show of hands again. See how this goes. How many people in here know a Jewish person by name? Oh, more than I thought they would be. I don't know that I've ever met an actual Jewish person. I I may have and just not remember. I've seen them on TV and movies. Um, But I don't know that I've ever met. So the logical question is, and here's the thing. We should definitely care in the general sense of, They're lost and they need to be found by Jesus. But apparently he's going to do that. Apparently he's telling us he's going to save a bunch of them. So we should just go, woohoo, good job God, and move on, right? Why should we care? Why does Paul go into such great detail about the fact that he is going to save a bunch of these people? And I believe that we should very much care because it reveals much about the character of God that we worship. You see, at the time of Paul's writing, when they would have been reading this originally, The most scandalous of things that God could do was to graft Gentiles into the believing family of God. It is the least expected, the least normative. Nobody thought it was going to happen, and nobody wanted it to happen. And yet, we see here that God does this to expand his kingdom. He tells them from the beginning, starting with you, we're going to be a light to the nations so that many Gentiles may believe. And even still... Thousands of years before he told him he was going to do it, now he is doing it, and they're surprised, they're shocked. Now in 2014, as we stand here today, it would be more scandalous if the Jewish people began to believe, because they've rejected Jesus for 2,000 years now. They have said for 2,000 years, Jesus is not the Messiah, we're still waiting on the true Messiah, he's he's coming, he's coming. He's coming. So it would be even more scandalous for the Jewish people to be regrafted into the family of God because they have rejected Him as a nation and as a people group for so long. And yet, when we see the revival of Jewish believers that have rejected Jesus, again, it will give credit to God. Why? Because God alone is after His glory. He doesn't want it to look like anybody else did it. He wants full credit. He deserves full credit credit so when he saves a bunch of gentiles guess who gets the credit because they weren't looking for it they weren't clamoring to be saved they weren't asking can i be an israelite please can you circumcise me on the eighth day even though i'm 30 years old can you i don't want that to happen but God, they weren't asking for that they don't want to be israelites and yet god is going to save a lot of them right now the jewish people are not clamoring to be included in the christian faith They don't want any part of it because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're still waiting on somebody else. They're going to be disappointed or they're going to be saved, according to Paul. But they don't want to to be a part of this. They don't want to be at our church this morning because they don't believe the way we believe. And yet, God is going to save a lot of them. Why? Because then he alone again will receive glory. God is after his glory and he will get it the way he sees fit and the way he sees fit, we see in verse 32, where it says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Again, not every single individual person is going to receive this mercy. All means all types of people. But another reason that we should care, and maybe more a little more applicable to us in a day-to-day sense, is it reveals the character of God as promise keeper. He made a promise to the Israelite people many, many years ago that they were his people and he was going to save them. So if Israel is God's chosen people, which cannot be refuted in Scripture, and he is still going to save many of them based upon the promise he made many years ago, how much more confidence can we believe what it says in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, you will be saved. We just went over that a few weeks ago, and we can approach God in confidence that He is going to save us based upon the grace found in Jesus. Why? Because He also made a promise to the Israelite people, and He sure is keeping that one. Paul is saying, look, He's made a promise to a lot of people, Jews and Gentiles, and He's keeping them both. And if it's true that He's going to save the least likely candidates, because we were the least likely candidates, then we should never Look upon anyone of any race, of any nationality, of any gender, of any economic standing, or anything, and look at them and say, they're out of God's reach. We should never say no for people, because we were the least likely candidates. And because God is a promise keeper, we should pray with confidence for every one of the 139 names we wrote down a few weeks ago. I don't know if God's going to save every one of them. We should pray that he is. We should pray that God is going to keep His promise to those 139 names. And then when they get saved, we can move on to some other ones. Because we know people each and every day in our lives. We come across them every day that aren't saved. And I, maybe it's a lack of confidence that God's going to keep His promise. But it says here He's going to keep His promise. We see it, that's throughout chapter 11. And He we can reiterate the title of the sermon series that God never fails. Because God never fails... It leads Paul to completely break out of character. In verse thirty verses thirty three through thirty six, we see Paul just completely. It's like he can't hold it in any longer. He's writing this letter. He's, he's very matter of fact about it. Yes, this is going to happen. We're going to regraft some Jews into the family of God. Yes, you were Gentiles. You got grafted in. Be careful. Da, da, da. And then all of a sudden. In verse 33, he goes, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. We, this means we cannot fully understand or interpret God's ways. I looked up the words unsearchable and inscrutable just to make sure I knew what they meant. And they basically mean the exact same thing. Unsearchable in its definition actually has the word inscrutable as one of the definitions and vice versa. So they're basically synonyms for one another. And Paul is using them both here saying how unsearchable are God's ways, how inscrutable are his judgments. Now this means we cannot fully understand or interpret God's ways of doing things. And while some of you that may cause to squirm and frustrate and even maybe anger, and I've been there, trust me, for Paul it causes him to break out an uncontrollable praise to God. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, because God's ways are so unsearchable and inscrutable, he just starts praising Him. And I ask you today, is that how you react? Do we look at God's ways, realize that we cannot fully understand them because He is God and we are not, and react with praise, or do we offer God advice? Paul addresses this in the next verse, verse 34, it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord... Or who has been his counselor? And Why does he bring that up? There's plenty of other sins that we commit in life that people think are bigger or worse than being God's counselor. And yet Paul calls that one out. And I think that's because the answer to the question is every one of us has been God's counselor. Or at least thought we were. Things don't go our way. We start getting upset. We start praying to God. Basically telling him how to do better (laughs) How not to mess things up next time. Because we think we know what we need, what we want. God, you're, you're just wrong in this case. I'm going to be your counselor and tell you how to fix this mess that you've put me in. This is our default when things don't go our way. We begin to question God and try to tell him that he doesn't know what's best. We start doubting his sovereignty, which is what led Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. Which is what led the Israelites to To sin against him and become a disobedient contrary people. And it's what is still affecting us to this day. Is we simply start doubting that God truly knows what is best. But as this chapter has shown. God doesn't always do things the expected way. Or the normal normative way. And that is what should lead us to praise him. For it. Not in spite of it. Stop saying things like, I'm going to praise you, God, even though I don't know what you're doing. And start saying things like, I'm going to praise you, God, because I don't know what you're doing. Because to this day, I have no idea why I'm a saved person. I had nothing to offer to God. I still have nothing to offer to God. I'm standing up here right now, a sinful man, preaching a sermon through sinful uh, sinful tongue, sinful mouth. And yet somehow, for some reason, God has chosen to save me. I have no idea why he saved any of us because we were wretched and did not deserve this grace. And those are unsearchable and scrutable ways. And that is why we should praise him today because we have no idea what he's doing. And that's awesome because if we did have a, a way of knowing what he's doing, we would not be saved right now because we would have told him to do something that, he, that was wrong. We would have met we would have messed it up, not God. And that is why we can have confidence that what it says in Romans 8 is that God is going to do for those who love Him what is for their good and for His glory. So as we conclude today, may the unsearchable and inscrutable ways lead us to praise Jesus the way Paul does in this doxology here. May it be that we can no longer hold it in. May it no longer be a source of frustration that we don't know exactly what God is doing. And may it become a point of worship that we don't know what God is doing all the time. And we should glorify Him for it. Because He does things when it makes zero sense to do so. And that includes us. May it lead us to more fully worship Jesus as the means by which this grace is delivered to Jew and to Gentile. And as Paul states in verse 36, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand with me as we worship this morning.